All right. Welcome to this setup. I hope this works out well. My kind of um, vision for this was that this would be a semicircle, and then we would somehow kind of semicircle this way. So, no worries, Mike. Yeah. Thanks for stopping in. Yep. Um, so as we are coming back to unorthodox, and I wanted to get through um, uh, kind of having some space for what we've gone through during this pandemic. Today, I feel like, is the very first day of unorthodox where we're getting into um, really what unorthodox is supposed to be about. So this kind of feeling like the first one, really. Um, I wanted to start where I think all of these conversations should start, and that's, that's historical criticism. Um, has anyone before me talking about historical criticism or posting on it or um, maybe hearing me write about it on Facebook or anything, has anyone heard about historical criticism before that? Raised by raising of hands? No? Okay, that actually, that's good, that's cool. Um, historical criticism sounds really boring when you say it out loud, right? Anybody? Are you guys here today? I think it sounds interesting. <laughs> yeah? But like we're just critiquing like what happened historically? No, yeah. Criticism, so when talking about the word criticism within a research model, uh, criticism has not more to, uh, to do with critiquing, but actually fully analyzing. Um, so there's, there's various ways of, of doing research criticism. There's historical criticism, there's textual criti criticism, redactional criticism, source criticism. Um, so the word criticism, it's not so much about critiquing as much as fully trying to analyze something from that place. So historical criticism sounds boring by phrase. Historical criticism is just kind of a fancy way of saying trying to understand an ancient text within the context in which it was written. Does that make sense? At face value? Not at face value. No. So if you, were to, if you were to open any ancient text and just read it, whatever your opinion about what that means would be taking it at face value, right? Historical criticism would be understanding the history in which it was written. It would be understanding the history of the region in which it was written. So if you know, you're reading the Bible, which was written in um, the ancient Near East or uh, Judea, Palestine, as opposed to in the Orient, right? So geography is also very different. Um, exegesis has to do with uh, the specifically the text itself. So looking at the original, much more broader, yeah. I think we did this in my high school history classes with European history that we looked at, not the Bible, but we looked at lots of different historical contexts and we had to write about how it reflects what was going on during that time period. Yeah, and, I think it's fascinating. Yeah. and I, I want to bring up historical criticism. So, so historical criticism is, is today one of the most controversial pieces of Christian um, interpretation, mm -hmm. right? Kind of like if, you know, you're not allowed to wear cotton or like all these rules that people have come up with from the Bible, 
Well, back then, like maybe they didn't have cotton or something, or maybe that was like hard to come by, or you know, like don't yeah. fish on. So it's like what the time in which you were writing is going to be different than the time we are living in now. Correct. And and the more we can understand that context, the more we can understand what the text is actually saying. Mm -hmm. So if I describe it this way, does this sound like a positive way to interpret ancient texts? Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously, right? Mm -hmm. it's, oh, almost, yeah. it's almost silly to say it's a negative way to understand text, right? Conservative Christians, evangelicals, call historical criticism heresy. Simply put, there are um, Bible schools that will teach what's called apologetics to counter historical criticism. Mm. Okay. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, everybody's looking at their phone. Here. Like what? Thomas is in the Bible. No, that's 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 a whole different. Okay. Yeah. So no, but understanding why they aren't in the Bible um, is kind of part of that process too. And doesn't like colonization kind of go into that too? Like if you think about you know uh, the church invading different places, like the different places had their own way of living and it worked for them, but the people that came into that situation decided that everything, or not everything, but many of the things that they, this culture was doing was wrong. Yeah, so, so the, first, the first Bible that was written in, um, in the vernacular of the people that was instituted by a government was the King James Bible, right? We all have heard King James. But he, was, he was very gay, by the way, um, and openly gay. Yeah. Yeah. So King James created a, 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 an interpretation of the Bible into English that a lot of, um, a lot of conservative Christians use today, um, but it was done in a way to uphold the empire at that time. So yeah, absolutely. And, and it's happened since then too. Um, the cool thing about historical criticism, and that's why I wanted to talk about it, is because this is the difference today. So people ask about denominations, like what's the difference between Methodist, Lutheran, Episcopalian, blah, 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 blah. Denominationalism is dead. It's meaningless today. Really, in our country, the difference is, is between what would be called progressive Christians and conservative Christians. And, and the thing that sets them apart is historical criticism, is half have decided that they're going to try to understand the Bible in the context in which it's written. And that doesn't just mean reading the Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. It means studying the history of that time, that place. It means working alongside secular sciences like anthropology, archaeology, um, and, and, and helping uh, uncover what the history says from as many angles as possible. So it, it's not just religious work either. And it's completely open to the scientific method. And, and anyone who knows the scientific method um, relishes when something you've hypothesized is incorrect, right? Mm -hmm. The scientific method looks at when something is incorrect as a positive thing because it means you get to now uh, look deeper and uncover more truth. So historical criticism is completely open to the scientific method as well. 
which means that as scholars look at ancient texts from this perspective, they might go this direction and say, well, we think this text means this. And then someone might come along and say, we've just discovered this piece of historical evidence, blah, 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 that counters this, and it actually means this. And so scholars will say, oh, great, that's really good news. That becomes a little different with dogma, right? I'll get to that. I'm actually getting ahead of myself. So, um, and, and, it's, and I'm going to go through a little bit of history, but it's really important to understand the history of historical criticism. So historical criticism started in the 17th century with Benedict Spinoza. The idea of trying to read ancient texts in their own context started before Spinoza, but Spinoza was the one who said, let's do this with the Bible. And so it started with Spinoza in the 17th century, but it didn't start gaining steam as a practice for biblical scholars until the 18th, 19th century. Frederick Schleiermacher, uh, Germany, was really the ones who kind of took this as a school of thought and really exploded it. It didn't become a primary teaching tool in American seminaries until the 20th century. So think about that for a, a second. The idea of trying to read the Bible in the, in the context in which it was written, did not start, did not really flourish in this country until the 1900s. That's 1900 years after this text had been written and about 1600 years after this text had been compiled into what we now know as the Bible. So 1600 years after the Bible was formulated, did someone finally say, hey, maybe we should try to understand this stuff in the context in which it was written, which means that's 1,600 years of people reading it, like Maria said, at face value, of just reading this text and, and thinking, well, I think it means this. But the scholars did read, and so that's what I'm talking about. The scholars, the scribes, the people who, that, who are creating the dogma and theology of the church and then communicating that to those who did not read were reading it at face value and deciding what it meant. And they were doing it based on their current context, not the context in which it was written. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. No, it is. It's just that Christianity has dominated the landscape for so long that a lot of these other communities were coming from more oppressed places and not not really um, having the resources to do that kind of work yet. So Reform Judaism absolutely does does this kind of work. Um, uh, it's not called Reformed Islam, um, but a lot of a lot of uh, people that study Islam from Islam from a more moderate perspective do the same exact kind of work, etc. So yeah. Say it again. Islam's a lot younger than Christianity, but but Judaism is not. But Judaism is also. I, um, I can't speak for a lot of the Eastern religions. Yeah, but yes, the, the, I, mean, I mean, so like historical criticism is not strictly a, a religious way of reading the text either. Um, historical criticism is a way of reading any ancient text. Historical criticism is probably something that's very needed for our own constitution, right? Mm -hmm. So again, historical criticism can be um, broadened to any, any older texts that were written by, by communities of people with, with customs and values that are foreign than our own. 
Chris, wouldn't you also say that the hypocrisy in which those people that say the Bible is a certain way also damages? I mean, that is a huge part of it. Absolutely, because they're reading it from their context, and they're thinking that this is what the Bible says, and it's, it's for the most part, absent of what the historical context was. Well, I'm also talking about, like, the folks that say, you know, extramarital affairs, whatever, the Ten Commandments, and, like, all the time are not living within that, um, those commandments. Well, yeah, especially anyone who's not a Jewish person who's saying that we need to live by the Ten Commandments, uh-huh. right? Because you're not Jewish. Why would you be following the Ten Commandments, right? Mm-hmm. So, because <laughs> my mother said so. <laughs> so our, our denominational body, this, this church's denominational body is the ELCA. Uh, uh, Shepherd of the Valley over on 154, their denominational body is the Missouri Synod. The, the ELCA and the Missouri Synod are not uh, communion partners because entirely because of historical critical analysis. In the 70s, uh, in the 70s, there were three Lutheran denominational bodies that were talking about joining together and becoming the ELCA. It was the, the Lutheran Church of America, the American Lutheran Church, and the Missouri Synod. And they were going to join together and just be one Lutheran church. And... Uh, these professors at Concordia and St. Louis Seminary were teaching historical critical analysis. It, it had just taken steam, and they were fully on board with it. And they said, we're going to teach uh, biblical scholasticism this way. We're going to try to understand the text in the context in which it's written. The president of that seminary stood up and said, you are not allowed to teach this. If you do teach it, you will be pink-slipped. They, the, the professors got together said, we're going to teach it anyways. We're going to take a stand. And so they did. Every single one of them got fired. Um, then they started uh, their own separate sem- uh, house church kind of seminary thing. Um, my seminary, uh, LSTC, the Lutheran School of Theology of Chicago, gave them, the, the students, their master's degrees, even though they were teaching in their, um, their, their houses. And so those two churches, the LCA and the ALC, joined together and became the ELCA. The Missouri Synod said, no, you guys are going to teach historical critical analysis. We are not going to join with you. And so they stayed separate, and they're separate today for many different reasons. Um, women in leadership, uh, ordination, and, and marriage of LGBTQ people, etc. But it all started... Huh? Oh, ELCA is far more big, bigger than... by a lot. Yeah. Like, what would their analytical perspective be? Yeah. I don't know what you would call it, but it's like, not... You know, it's like, it's like, it's like, it's like, they would be called literalists. Literalists? Yeah, mm-hmm. biblical literalists. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but the weird thing is that that's not what they... Well, it's also not... Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I agree. Yeah. I mean, we could go far more into this than we are. You know, we only have so much time. So, um, but you're, you're totally right. Yeah. But but they would say like it's a we take the Bible as what it said. Like God said it. I believe it. That's but they're not looking at um, 
be kind and read it and it means the same to everybody kind of thing. Like I think that would be Yeah. So like first first Timothy it says, I do not allow I do not permit women to speak in church. And it would say says it right there, that settles it. I'm you know, like it's not you don't have a problem with me, you have a problem with God. And then someone else would say, This is this is a book that we don't even think Paul wrote. Like based on looking at the historical studies of this, we don't think Paul wrote this. History yeah, historical he critical affirms women speaking in other places. And so like you look at a bigger what well, is historical critical analysis would look at First Timothy. It would analyze the the words that are used, the, um, the the sentence structure compared to letters we know that Paul wrote for a fact, and say this does not match how Paul wrote. This was probably not written by Paul. Not to, it would also look at the fact that Paul was very pro women in leadership, pro women as part of the movement. Say the fact that these two things are complete opposite of each other doesn't make sense either. Um, and say this is probably a later community that wrote in Paul's name that was upset that he was in favor of women in leadership and tried to write this part in his name and say that we're going to correct a mistake that we think Paul made. So 1 Timothy was not written by Paul. In fact, there are six, six letters in the Bible that have Paul's name on them that were not written by Paul. And we know that because of historical critical analysis. But the longer tradition is also to exclude women. And so that they're able to like yeah but it would also take archaeology so john dominic crossan john dominic crossan uh, does a lot of archaeological work looking at art in ancient uh, palestine mm -hmm. and there's a cave that has a picture of paul with two women and the women are holding up the sign of the, the apostolic sign of blessing and so it was known that there was a period of time where people knew that Paul was very much in favor of women in leadership. I think one of the women is, is it's even written as Dorcas, who's mentioned in the Bible. And, and so someone later on came and scratched out the women's eyes and their hand, making the sign of the blessing. It, was, it wasn't modern graffiti, but it was ancient graffiti. It was another community coming in and saying, women are not supposed to be in leadership. We disagree with this. We're going to scratch it out. Um, and so John Dominic Crossan also looks at secular archaeology and say, here's more evidence that Paul was actually very much in favor of women in leadership as much as men. Um, so, so, yeah, please. Why um, have certain churches or um, religions been not? I'll get to that. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to get to that. Um, so I, I want to quickly go through what historical criticism looks like in a very kind of basic way. There's, it's a lot more in depth, but I just kind of wanted you to get a feel of what it is with some pretty, um, some pretty, pretty relevant things that I wrote on the handout right here. So the first one is homosexuality. Many of you know homosexuality has been condemned within this country using biblical, ref, uh, biblical reasoning for a long time. So homosexuality, I wrote it right there for you. The Greek word that has been translated as homosexuality is arsenikotoi, all right? That's a compound word. It's only used twice in the entire Bible by Paul. Not only is it only used twice in the Bible, uh, scholars cannot find this word in any other ancient texts anywhere. Not just by Paul, not just by Christians, but, and not just by Jewish, Jewish people. They can't find this word in any other Greek text anywhere, which means Paul created it himself. And it's a compound word. Um, it means man and bed, basically combined. Uh, yeah. Could you argue though, like every word has a beginning, and that like he didn't create homosexuality, he created a word for it. 
No, and so they, yeah, so they took the word itself and they've looked, and they've looked what, what could Paul have meant as he's navigating the Greco-Roman world. And then they look at how people translated it first into Latin, uh, which was the first language that the Greek text was translated into, and the Latin word that was used, and I wrote it right here, pratico, has to do with pederastry, pederasty, which is molesting young boys. So the word itself, I know that sounds terrible, but what Paul is talking about when he invented this word was an abusive relationship and an economic relationship of men abusing young boys sexually, and he was condemning it. Very common in the Greek, mm-hmm. and 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 he was outright condemning it, and so our Seneca toy, from the Latin that was written in about the fifth sixth century, used pedico, all the way until 1946, used either uh, boy molestation, um, molestation, pedophilia. These kinds of words were were how they were translated. Until 1946 was the first time the Revised Standard Version put the word homosexual in an English translation of the Bible. It was still the first time the word homosexual was used in any language in a biblical translation at all. 1946. There are. Again, it's in Leviticus, and it's the same thing. It has to do with molestation, and, and it was translated specifically that way. Um, it was not about uh, even, it wasn't even about adult um, sexual relationships. It was about men to boys, um, women to young girls. But just because it wasn't talked about in the Bible, does that mean that it wasn't, even if there was a word for it, that it wasn't It wasn't because it wasn't really a thing, because the, the idea of, of sex and marriage was such a, such a foreign concept back then to what it is now, that it wasn't, it, it, it just wasn't a concept. Um, for example, men had many wives. Men in, in ancient Judaism were allowed to not only have many wives, they were allowed to sleep with other women who were not their wives as long as those women were not virgins. They were not you know, considered property any longer to their, their parents. And so the, just the, the, the whole nature of sexual intercourse, marriage, et cetera, was so foreign back then that, that homosexuality would just not have been a concept at all, um, primarily because homosexuality entails mutuality. Um, they very well could have. It just would not have. It's not something someone would have batted an eye about. Right, like all the different cultures. There's like almost every culture has. Yeah. Acceptance of transsexuals. I mean, it. it well, and like happens. we said, King James was openly gay. Yeah. It wasn't. It wasn't. Correct. Huh. No, God didn't have an opinion. Or, or more properly to say, the people who wrote the text at that time didn't have an opinion about it. Yeah. So, uh, again, it didn't end up in a 1983 translation, German translation of the Bible, and the Germans were the ones who, who were the, the experts on translating the Bible from the ancient languages into the vernacular until 1983. They did some digging and found that an American company paid for that translation to happen Whoa. in a German yeah. Bible. Yikes. Um, European translations after 1522. So, so Martin Luther was the first one to translate the Greek into uh, a vernacular language, being German, and that was in 1522. The the German word he used was Nabenschander, which means uh, I know, right? 
<laughs> I think it's still I think it's still being used in German Bibles. Was that for lesbian? It means boy. It means boy molestation. Yeah. So Nabenschander means <laughs> no. Nabenschander means boy molestation, and that's what was used until 1983. And it's but in most German Bibles, it's still used today. Okay, so that's, that's just a snapshot of homosexuality using historical critical analysis, all right? Um, the other one is apocalyptic literature in the book of Revelation. So the book of Revelation by a lot of conservative Christians today is believed to be this manuscript of how the world is going to end. That is completely not true. Uh, apocalyptic literature um, is commentary on a current thing that is happening. Uh, apocalypse means unveiling uh, the revealing kind of a thing. It has nothing to do with predicting future events. Um, and we know this so that, that when, um, when John of Patmos is writing, he's having his vision of the book of Revelation happening. He's saying he sees Babylon on the seven hills. And uh, the seven hills, so the Palatine was built on seven hills in Rome. You can go to Rome today, you see the seven hills, you see the, the ruins of the Palatine right there you know that John is talking about Rome. He's not talking about some future powerful kingdom. He's talking about uh, Rome and its power in that moment. Um, the book of Daniel, chapter 9 specifically, is apocalyptic literature. The book of Daniel was written by three different authors. It was not written by anybody named Daniel. Um, and the last part, the apocalyptic part, chapter 9, uh, was written about the Seleucid, which is a Greek... Um, takeover of the Jerusalem and ransacking of the Jerusalem temple. It's where we get the Maccabees and it's where the story of Hanukkah comes from. Uh, so Daniel chapter 9 was a commentary talking about how God will defeat the Seleucids at some point. Um, it's, a, it's, just, it's a kingdom within Greece that, that became very powerful for a short time and ransacked the Jerusalem temple. Um, at some point, can you circle back to Christian scientists? Because I have a question about that. I don't know anything about Christian scientists. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, a really wonderful example to understand what apocalyptic literature is is the story of Christmas Carol, right? The Christ a Christmas Carol. So the story of Ebenezer Scrooge. He's visited by ghosts. Um, he sees the ghost of future, present, or whatever it is, right? It's not predicting something that's going to happen. It's a warning of what may happen if he doesn't change his ways. So A Christmas Carol is a modern-day apocalyptic text, all right? And the reason that's important is because the book of Revelation is used by people in power to create policy today. Donald Trump, when he was president, moved the uh, American embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. He did that entirely because of his evangelical base who thinks that uh, Jerusalem needs to be acknowledged as the capital of Israel so that the apocalypse, Armageddon, could be ushered in. That's all from Revelation, and it's all from treating the book of Revelation as though it's this futuristic prediction of what's going to happen one day, as opposed to this apocalyptic literature that is giving warning to the Roman Empire saying that God is bigger than you and God is going to defeat you. Make sense? Hell. Hell. The actual word hell is not used until the 5th century. Uh, hell is a Greco-Roman influence from Hades. Um, 
the, the word that we have translated as hell in our English Bible is actually the word Gehenna, which means Valley of Hinnom, which was a, a site right outside of Jerusalem that was considered cursed because they used to do child sacrifices there. It was also where they burned all of their garbage. It's where they forced uh, lepers and people who were excommunicated to live. Um, and because the place was always on fire, they were always burning their trash. Images of fire, weeping, uh, people were scrap, uh, trying to find scraps of food who lived there to survive, gnashing of teeth. Um, so so Gehenna, Gehenna was a literal place that Jesus referenced to say, if you don't follow this way of love and compassion, it's going to be just like the people who are living in Gehenna. Hell was not even a concept. Um, eternal, I wrote there, because the word eternal doesn't exist in the Bible either. We look at the word eternal as, as time, ongoing time. The Greek uses the word uh, aeon, ton aeon, which means age of age, has nothing to do with time. It has to do with what is, what is the essence of that age right there. Um, eternal was developed by August, uh, St. Augustine, who did not know how to read Greek, only knew how to read Latin. Um, and, and then the medieval church took all of that from Augustine and just went crazy with it, created modern-day hell, which came from Hades, and then Dante and medieval church took uh, that concept and colorfully added a lot of torture and burning and the devil and blah, 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 blah. And so all of our modern-day concepts of hell come from Greco-Roman influence, and then Dante took it and just ran with it and, and completely influenced Western Christianity with it. Is there a connection between, so um, hell with one L is a goddess of the underworld in uh, Norse, Norse mythology? Norse mythology. Is that connected? Yeah, uh, it would have been connected when Christians were traveling to Scandinavian countries and had this moment of like, oh, this is your mythology, we're going to adopt some of that, etc. So yeah. Yep. So it seems like the ultimate expression of exclusion and individualism. Yeah, you can, you can definitely credit medieval theology with starting that. And then Luther and the Enlightenment just totally taking off with it too. Son of God. Jesus believed in an afterlife. He and so it, um, it, it's it's tough because the Bible was written. The New Testament was written at a time where afterlife theology was just coming out for Jewish people. Um, the Greco-Roman world did believe in an afterlife, and they did believe in an, an internal eternal aspect of it. So that that very much was there already developed. The the, the foundation was there. Um, Jewish people in Jesus' time either believed, so they believed a couple things. Either so everybody dies and they just they just basically go to sleep. Those who um, are part of the chosen people will be well, no, because Isaiah says this too. So essentially, everyone is resurrected. God is going to create um, heaven on earth, essentially. So it's about earth. It's not some place somewhere else. It all takes place on earth, and then everybody lives harmoniously together. So that is far more in line with what biblical authors believed at that time. Does that make sense? Yeah. Surface reading of the Bible. Yeah. But like, what about the like very sort of like reincarnation? No. It's, it's an Eastern. Little, like, your own soul thing. 
No, Jewish people believed in a bodily resurrection. So the whole idea of the separation between the soul and the physical body, again, was entirely Greco-Roman. It was uh, uh, Plato. It's Platonic. And Paul was very influenced by Plato. And was there a soul before the body? From Paul's thinking, from that Greco-Roman thinking, yeah. And the soul connected to the part of the divine um, that was perfect. And that was soul material. It wasn't physical material. Yeah. No, I'm trying. I mean, you guys are asking wonderful questions. And actually, I, didn't even, I don't even have a lot of questions for us because I thought this was going to take more time. Um, so I'm going to run through these next two really quick, okay? We should chew on this and come back next week. Well, yeah, take your, yeah. Take, your, take your hand out and think about this. And yeah, we could do that. Son of God is something we hear about in the Bible constantly. Son of God has nothing to do with Jesus being God's son. Son of God has everything to do with the fact that Caesar was called the son of God. And so Jesus, who is a staunch anti-imperialist and a poor, radical rabbi, started calling himself the Son of God. It was a challenge to not just Caesar, but what Rome represented. Um, and, and we learned that because we look at other ancient texts and what their stories are. Caesar Augustus, who died in 4 CE, so four years after Jesus was born, basically around the same time, the most powerful emperor in all of Roman history had his own birth narrative where his mother was a virgin, was visited upon by a god, impregnated, and gave birth to Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus rose up as a young man, um, uh, avenged his uncle, Julius Caesar, and became the emperor of Rome and, and had to have his own miraculous birth narrative to, to help beef up his story and was called the Son of God. Jesus' birth narrative, born of a virgin, uh, you know, no male conception had happened, blah, 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 uh, but born in, in, in a stable, in, in a poor area of a poor tribe. It was meant to be a counter story to Caesar Augustus specifically. Son of God is a challenge to not just Rome, but anti-imperialism, or it's a challenge to imperialism altogether. Um, the, the entire New Testament is a response to imperialism. What are the pharaohs called in All old text, I don't know. Not, I mean, nothing right? with Jesus, really. No, I don't know. Like, were they already, like, going? Way before. Yeah, like, way before. Egypt, yeah. Egypt, Egypt had, had kind of survived alongside Rome, but basically knew Rome was far more powerful and just kind of... But it did seem like they were with the sun god and stuff? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of borrowing that's happening. Zoroastrian um, is, is far older than Christianity and has a, just a ton similar with the stories and whatnot. Why did they create, why did he say Virgin Mary? What word does that play in? Why? The, the Greek word isn't actually virgin. It has to do with righteousness. So the virgin narrative wasn't created for centuries after when the Catholic Church was powerful and it, and it needed to take Mary's imperfections mm -hmm. and and make them go away. Mm, yeah. With Catholics, but again, Protestants, people who've been doing this this historical critical work have for a long time said this is what Mary is, blah blah blah. It's not so it's only within Catholicism that that her her virginity is still meaningful. 
Same with original sin. Also, Eastern, Eastern Christians don't believe in original sin and never have. Mm. No, no, he used it intentionally as a challenge to Roman imperialism. Like, why couldn't I also be the son of God as a poor person or like? To say, yeah, so all of his characteristics as a poor Palestinian Jewish person, Mm -hmm. calling himself the son of God, saying that, and so that the the Jesus value system was the complete opposite of the Roman value system. Mm -hmm. So Jesus is making this countercultural message saying that this is what's really important, not what Rome is, is saying is what's important. For Rome, it was power, wealth, control, etc. Jesus is talking about love of neighbor, love of enemy. Um, you know, it's, it's about your reward in heaven, not your reward on earth. You know, so it was intentionally making a counterintuitive uh, challenge to the Roman Empire. So is he saying that I'm the son of God and so is everybody else? No, he's saying I, with... Uh, he's saying, I, with these characteristics and this value system, I am the son of God. Caesar, who is saying he is the son of God, is not the son of God. Okay. Because, you know, and, and basically Jesus is saying, I am opposite of him, and I am the son of God. You know? No. 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 Because mostly he calls himself the son of man. Yeah. Um, Son of Adam. And then there's something in either Gospel of John or, or the Epistles of John that says we too will be made sons of God. Children of God? Children, yeah. It would be more. But again, children of God has to do with citizenship. So citizenship in Rome was very exclusive. You were in, in, in this world, you were either a citizen of Rome or you were everything else below them. Right? And what about in his image? Where does that play in to it? God's image in general? No, doesn't Jesus say in his and I made in his image God's image? Or- yeah, but again, that's about saying that that um, Jesus and, and the value system that Jesus represented uh-huh. is the manifestation of the divine. Right. So again, Caesar was God on earth, right? Mm-hmm. And Caesar being the most powerful person as God on earth, divinely ordained, Jesus is making the same message but saying, I am the opposite of this. So it's all, again... The anti-imperialistic message of the New Testament is is central, and we don't know about it today because we are an imperialistic culture who does not so want. Have a lot of to it, but it's not there Absolutely, mm-hmm. but that's what historical critical analysis is about. Yeah. Yeah, but it wasn't just about this is how you should live. You can go on your own personal way and just lead a good life, and you're you're going to be good. It was also about developing a community and yeah. living alternatively to this empire. I mean, they are and they aren't because you can't separate religion from lived life back then, whereas we do that today. Correct. We yes. So finally, um, I'm just going to say really quickly, don't ask me any follow-up questions on this one because we don't have time. <laughs> so there's, there's uh, a, doctor, a doctoral student at Duke who, uh, uh, earning her PhD of religion 
So what medieval scribes did was they would have text and they had to copy it by hand. This was before the press was invented. And so they had to copy text by hand. This is what a lot of Catholic scribes did. And because they didn't have erasers back then, they would scratch out a word and make a notation in the margin. And so you could literally see um, how they redacted text. And so this grad student looked in the Gospel of John at how Catholic scribes had redacted text and found that in, in the Gospel of John, when John talks about Mary and Martha, that they had completely added Martha and turned Mary into Martha's sister. And what was actually there in the Gospel of John was Mary Magdalene. And so Mary Magdalene was this powerful person in the Gospel of John who was looked at as an apostle, and later Catholic scribes scratched, uh, scratched her out uh, didn't scratch her out, just added uh, Martha entirely to it. And they could see where this, this was done. And again, it was done to take uh, Mary Magdalene's power and lessen it because she was a woman. So this, this was just uncovered about five years ago. So the historical critical work, it's still happening today, and it's really cool. So that's the last example I'm going to give you. So why does this matter? This work didn't start until the 17th century, didn't take off until the 19th century. How much dogma, doctrine, and theology was already created when this started? Think about that. How many... Huh? <laughs> it does. So... I mean, it's a fair point. Why isn't there a bigger emphasis in saying, like, here's all these wrongs that, that need to be corrected? So the well, Bible that I use... Like, the more literature to it. Like, well, they don't add literature explaining all... So I use a Bible called the Harper Call and Study Bible that has... It's not just the text of the Bible. It gives you about three pages before each book of the Bible of historical information... And then as you're reading it, the top part is the text. The bottom part is all of the contextual information that goes along with it. And so there are Bibles out there now that are trying to be as authentic to what scholasticism has written. Like with footnotes but they're, and things. Yeah, but they're not doing yeah. it in a way of saying, here's all these horrible things that happen and we're trying to correct it. They're just simply giving the information. Here's the background. You know, so they won't, they won't have the, 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 the books that we know were not written by Paul. They don't have them as written by Paul anymore. They just, it just says the letter to Timothy. For, I just mean, like, why isn't there, why is nobody else inspired anymore? As, like, far as, like, the Bible written by these inspired people that are, like, somehow divine. Why did that suddenly end? Why is there no longer books being added by people who can be inspired, like, the, oh, there are. There's a ton of them. I mean, I would point to, like, Rachel Held Evans and Rob Bell, and it's just these books don't become authoritative in the church. You know, no, I'm not going to write my own Bible, but I will say, but, I, but we do say, we say that, that um, the end of the Bible is not the end of God's revelation. God is constantly revealing. God is constantly... Um, it is, but there, there are people who will say, this is the end of God's written word, Nothing gets added to it. That's it. But then there's people like us who will say, no, God is constantly revealing still. And, and um, I would say scientific inquiry, astrophysics, all of this stuff is, 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 is God's revelation to the world. 
um, quantum entanglement, mm-hmm. um, uh, light moving as a particle and as a wave. I mean, all of this is revelation that's still happening. Why don't we ask the Bible? Because there's no authoritative body anymore that will do that. The Catholics still think they're the most powerful, but there's enough people who say bullshit. Then there's the evangelicals, blah, 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 and there's enough people that say bullshit. And then there's us doing historical critical analysis, and then there's all of them saying bullshit. And so there's just no authoritative body anymore to say we're going to add. That like, it's not going to be universally accepted of like, whoa, this person did do this stuff, and we're going to bring it into the Bible. Correct. And what about the study Bibles? There's a lot of study Bibles out there that they give you in different classes. Yeah, so the one I recommend, their editing bodies do that. And so the one that I recommend is the HarperCollins Study Bible, and their editing bodies fully incorporate what scholasticism has said up until so that point. Historical it's just the scholars. So the professors that I learned from in seminary, not one of them questions historical criticism. They all utilize it. It's just what you do. So there's no source of citations. Uh, there's a lot of source citations, but but they do the work too. And then I'll just add, like, I think, like conservatives, uh, fundamentalists—they see this like historical criticism and stuff going. So then they find ways that they can incorporate historical study mm-hmm. that doesn't compromise their own view. Mm-hmm. And um, and in particular, like going super into minute details about Greek words and the way they're so, like, I've been to a lot of these Bible conferences that have, like, the top scholars and all this stuff, and that there's two big academic bodies that meet together, the American Academy of Religion and the Society of Biblical Literature. Mm-hmm. The American Academy of Religion is, like, open to a lot of ideas, but the SBL is kind of dominated by um, more evangelical scholars, and if you go and listen to that thing, it just gets, like, hyper-focused on uh, Greek grammar or something. And it, because this study doesn't compromise their, um, their doctrine in the same way that this kind of historical stuff compromises their doctrine. And then even at some of those, there's like one of the first ones I went to, um, there was a, a guy, Peter Enns, who got kicked out of his evangelical seminary for this. This happens all the time, by the way. Like, conservatives kick people like this out all the time. As soon as you start to study this, it's like gone. So Peter Enns is an example of one person who was kicked out. And actually, we have his books at the very top of this for the Bible. Um, There's a conservative as well. You have both in your book here. There's really nothing new in this. We heard all this before. Of that professor raised his hand and said, What do you mean there's nothing in this? I'm a PhD student. I've never heard any of this. And the professor said, It's, it's our job to keep you from this information. Yeah. Like that literally happened. Um, and that was the fundamentalist movement from 1910 to 1915 was in direct contradiction, trying to shut this down, trying to say that doesn't exist. And so it, and those universities, I mean, like, Biola was where fundamentalism comes from, Biola University. And so, like, Biola was founded to erase this. And, uh, and so it's still part of Biola's reason of existence to erase this. 
like that this does not exist because it creates too many problems for the powerful. Mm -hmm. um, what I don't understand is the fact that we have factions and people that can't agree is not a new thing. Presumably it was the same when the Bible was being put together over the years, that people couldn't agree what should and shouldn't be in there. So how do we, how do, how do scholars even say that there is one book and there isn't important stuff that was left on the head of the floor? I don't even understand how we can even get to the hypothesis that this book is a be-all end-all of anything when there was always people that didn't People who, so progressive Christians, progressive scholars, people who employ the, the historical critical analysis would not say that about the Bible. They would never say it's the end-all be-all. And they are people that study the Gospel of Mary, the Gospel of Thomas, these, these other texts that were not included. Those texts weren't included because the Catholic Church had come to power under Rome, decided to uh, create the finalized form of the Bible which in a way was to protect its own imperialism and left some of these other books because they just didn't fit the narrative. Some of them didn't get included because they just didn't have enough, uh, enough of, of its existence available to include it. So there's various reasons, but... But why, is, why are we still relying on this incomplete? Right, why, in any why rely on anything? I mean, we're not, the, pro, the thing is that we're not fully relying on it, but we are relying on it. The Hebrew Bible was constructed by oppressed peoples. It wasn't constructed by imperialist people. The Gospels um, were the same thing. I mean, the entire Bible was constructed by, or was written by oppressed peoples living under oppression, describing their oppression, and describing how God comes into that and rescues them. But it wasn't compiled until it was an imperialistic force that decided to compile it. And so when you can look back and say, we understand that an imperialistic force compiled it and turned it into the Bible, but when we can actually look at that text and look at it in its own context, then we can see the value in it. It's the very concept that you can't really define God. I mean, God is beyond anything that we could possibly imagine. So for there to be an authority on what God is, it just goes against the whole concept of being humble. You know, and trying to bring love into the world, we just don't understand that. So, how could there be an authority on it? But that yeah. goes to the context of the time it was written. You really believe a woman had a baby when she was hundreds of years old? Or that the earth was formed by God in six days? But see, you're making I a. Say, I don't know. But that's the but, context of the historical uh, text that you're looking at, uh, and you take it. Like, I don't take it at face value, but there's a lot of people that do take it at face value. But that's why historical criticism is so important. Mm -hmm. Criticism right. in general is important. But I Because it's the only book that was compiled when there was an authoritative body to compile it. But it was the losers who wrote it, but it was put together by the winners, yeah. the people that right. were the top. So they did do that, but with historical critical analysis, we can now look back at the history of that creation, understand the damage and the evil that was done in creating it, and still, so the black, the black community is a phenomenal way to look at how the Bible, even though it was created by an imperialistic force, became a source of salvation, um, for an oppressed community. Yes, 
right? So it was black, it was slaves who read the Bible, learned how to read, then, then taught other slaves how to read, which was what they were not allowed to do, came to this text that was created by an imperialistic force, but written by oppressed people, um, and, and found God as this liberating force. Same with people in Latin America who um, developed liberation theology and, and found this, this very liberative um, force within the Bible. It is, except the history of it has not been removed from us. So if you didn't have the history of this stuff, if I wasn't sharing this history with you and we didn't know any of this, it would be far more manipulative and warped. But the fact that there are scholars who are willing and able to go through the history and see this and see that this was a book written by oppressed people but compiled by oppressors can take that element away from it and and still see... um, the experience of oppressed people and their own divinity, their, their, their encounter with the divine who also hears their impression and calls them to liberate themselves and, and their, their siblings, etc. That all still exists. None of that has been taken away. So maybe that vulnerability is why there's such resistance to doing that. If you're going to look at the context of the Bible being written by oppressed people, it is, a, and Christianity is still run by oppressors. This text is still using to justify oppression. And so it takes people who are, are willing to employ this hi- historical critical analysis to stand up against that oppression too and say, no, this is, this is a book for the oppressed. It's a book about liberation. It's a book about equity and jubilee and all this stuff because there are forces still trying to use this to harm people. I think there's a certain irony too in that in uh, fundamental churches on the one hand you're supposed to be very individualistic it's an individualistic community in many ways on the other hand you're supposed to accept um, a certain text as divine and you don't have any choice about that and I think there's a kind of profound irony there. And that's intentional. Yes. That's intentional so you don't question it. Yeah. It's also, you know, we keep saying both, but it's really the library. Yeah. That's something I've been intentional about saying, is that like, this is a library of books. And some of these books are more historical than others. Um, and I, a lot of times like, I think about it in, in connection to a book that really shaped me, I'd like to kill a mockingbird. Atkins, yeah, Atkins didn't exist, but he's still a powerful mm-hmm. person in like my own development. And I think Atkins or to kill a mockingbird lasts because it speaks to something in us. And so I think that with the Bible, it lasts, this library, the word Bible means library actually, um, this library of books, it speaks to something in us especially to people who are oppressed, like black people or Latin American liberation theologians. Um, because also they were taking it at face value. So there's a woman, Dorothy Filet, who's a Lutheran. She talks about, she didn't like the idea of the virgin birth because she's like, it doesn't fit with historical criticism. It's not an actual real thing. And then she went to Latin America and they read it as like, oh my gosh, the, the single mom is the, is the most important. And Dorothy Belay was like, 
others read it in, in Latin America and said, this is a beautiful, this is incredible. You know, like, I'm going to be like Mary. Yeah. Or like, like last Sunday, I didn't, go, I didn't go into the text from this perspective because I want to do it at another time, but the story of Jesus going back to Nazareth and, like, he can't perform any miracles. Nobody, you know, they, they say, isn't this the son of Mary, the carpenter? Um, and, and you look at that, and I know that people have, uh, like conservatives, have taken that text where Jesus goes to his hometown. And, the, text, and the, the, the phrase that Jesus says is, a prophet is not without honor unless in his own hometown or amongst his own kin. And, and I can see this conservative justification of saying, like, oh, we've given you the power to speak this truth, and there are going to be people where you come from who are not going to accept it, and you just need to persevere. And really what this story is, is that Jesus, this illegitimate child, comes back to his hometown. His father is not mentioned, only his mother is mentioned, which is very, um, I mean, which is not how antiquity worked. You were your father's son, but they said, isn't this the son of Mary? Um, and, and so it was about him being an illegitimate child coming back to his hometown. And again, it's a story about the fact that Jesus, as an illegitimate child, is the son of God. Um, and, and that whole concept has been erased. And replaced with a virgin birth and blah blah blah. Chris, um, Chris, so you are accepting accepting of all religions, right? Or like Eastern religions. Like, how does progressive Christianity embrace other religions? I, it's in the sense that any religion that is about that is about love mm-hmm. is Nature. it's a universal concept. Okay. And and living. Um, in sustainable ways with each other is a universal concept. We say that for us, we find the definition of that in, in, in the way of life of Jesus, but other cultures find that definition in their relationship with the Torah, which Jewish people do, or Krishna, which Hindu people do, or um, the, 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 the practice of Buddhism, etc. I just think that's like one of the critical things that keeps me from Christianity is like making every other religion wrong. There are there are Christian expressions that do that, and then there are Christian expressions that don't. Yeah. Okay. yeah. So um, I want to be conscious of time. On your handout on the back, I wrote um, just some some resources if you want to engage it farther. For the Bible tells me so. That's a book that Taylor said is written by Peter Enns. It's also a documentary. Yes. Yep. It's also a documentary. Um, and so the link there is from the library. If you get a library card, you can watch the documentary. Um, yourself, it's about uh, it's about a lot of the historical information about homosexuality that I talked about. I also wrote the 1946 movie, which is trying to finance its project right now. But it talks about when in 1946, when this editorial body added homosexuality to the Bible, and how this grad student was like, "Hey, you guys screwed up. I don't think it should be translated this way." And the editorial body was like, "Oh my God, you're right." But it had already been published, and all these other groups had taken it and ran with it. And so that's why homosexuality exists in the Bible. Um, As far as the book of Revelation and stuff, uh, this was my New Testament professor. She's got a book called The Rapture Exposed that's very easy read. It's not for, like, scholars, blah, blah, blah. Inventing Hell does the same thing with Hell by John Sweeney. Brazen Church is a really cool website that does articles on progressive Christianity, and so you can explore the various articles, but I included the one about um, hell invade, how hell invaded church doctrine. John Dominic Crossan talks about how Jesus and Christianity is this anti-imperialistic um, message, 
and then finally I included the story on that, that Duke doctoral student. So that's for you to engage further. Um, I hope this is meaningful, meaningful for you. I knew it was going to start off kind of boring because it sounds that way, but I, I kind of hope it helps you understand the difference between these church bodies right now and what's entailed in the work. Um, if you guys have questions for next week, you can start off and have and you know take your your handout home and chew on it. And if you have questions, we can do a short time of of that. Um, otherwise, I'll just have a different topic for us too. But I just want you to understand, historical critical analysis is the work that I do. It's it's the foundation of all of the work I do when I interpret the Bible. It's it's where it's where it always starts at, and and for any progressive Christian as well. Um, so I just want to have a, a quick space. Is there any prayers that anybody would like to lift up? She's going to teach us about the true nature of God. Well, why don't we just take a moment to share the prayers in our hearts that we don't want to speak out loud. Loving God, you hear the prayers of our hearts and those of our lips. We commend all for whom we pray, trusting in your grace, most especially in your love. Amen.